Welcome to episode 5 of Didn't Know, a podcast about things you never knew you wanted to know. I'm Alessio Donini, joined by my friend and co-host Brad Brawl. How is it going, Brad? It's going pretty good today. Um, you know, it's been quite a while since we've been back here recording together. A lot has happened, but uh, I'm doing quite well today. How are you doing, Alessio? How have you been? Um, you know, aside from the fact that the world is on fire and, and people are dying and, and everything's kind of crappy, personally, I've been okay. Um, I'm really excited to talk because something happened recently <laughs> that kind of made us look outside of Earth and towards the center of our solar system. So 160 million kilometers away from Earth, Venus has become a new focal point for studies into the possibilities of not intelligent but microbial life in another planet's atmosphere. Um, It's important to state researchers do not have definitive proof, but what they do have is something that in most cases, as it's presented itself on Venus, points to organic life. So that thing is the chemical phosphine. It seems simple enough. It's a flammable gas, extremely toxic. It's produced right here on Earth by some life forms that don't actually need oxygen to survive, which is very helpful. And it's actually been talked about for several years in the past leading up to now as kind of a way to indicate the possibility of life for future searches. It's been discussed in astrobiology circles as an indicator for searches for life. And so what we found on Venus and what I'm sure everybody has heard by now we found on Venus phosphine is actually a pretty exciting discovery. So if we're talking about how researchers act when they find something like this, by the way, this was an accident. This wasn't meant to be found, which makes it even more interesting because we've been ignoring Venus for so long in the search for life in our solar system that this kind of just comes out of nowhere. So the first things researchers do when they find something like this is they start shaving things down. So if you think of Occam's razor, which is a way of rationalizing that says the thing that requires the fewest assumptions, the thing that's the simplest, is probably the one that's true. And once again, I want to stress, there is no definitive proof of life on Venus. But if we apply Occam's razor with the amount of phosphine that's in the Venusian atmosphere, there's actually a lot to be excited about. So... Brad, you've heard about this stuff. I want to know what you think right off the bat based on what I've said. Um, are you excited that, about the possibility of life on Venus? I am pretty excited about uh, the discovery of the gases in the atmosphere of Venus. Now, when I read that, I really didn't know what it meant. Um, I just thought that the headline looked pretty cool. And I also didn't know that it was an accident. So that's the first time I'm hearing about that. That's pretty funny how they could be so in-depth with their research looking for other life and then it just happens to appear upon Venus. So um, this whole situation is both cool and just kind of fun, I think. I'm not taking it too seriously, but uh, this research that we did uh, actually made this whole discovery pretty interesting to me. What's interesting is that, yeah, like it was was an accident. And, And when the researcher who found this saw it, she kind of had to do a double take and then and then come back and, and look and, and you know, when they see something like that, 
before they can get to the Occam's razor part of kind of shaving off things that require the the most assumptions to to get to something that's more likely to be going on before they could get to that point they had to really look at it so so it, it was over the course of several days and I remember hearing that they were supposedly getting ready to uh, publish some sort of announcement and getting really excited for that and then what they said I, I mean I remember I was speaking to a buddy of mine um, what I thought is that it's got to be they've either found life somewhere or they have found some sort of sign of life somewhere because I, I believe we knew it was about Venus and scientists speculate that Venus was actually very similar to Earth. It had liquid oceans, but what happened is that there was a runaway greenhouse effect, kind of like what we're seeing on Earth now, but multiply that by by a ridiculous amount, right? So the atmosphere in Venus is super thick, blah blah blah. But um, yeah, I I I just think it's it's crazy that something so important, a discovery like this, could be based on pure coincidence. Initially. And so close to Earth as well. I mean, it's just right there. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely insane. And what's more insane is that they've actually done calculations. Because they had to think about this from, from a scientific standpoint, right? It's one thing to get excited, but it's another thing to to really do the math and and sit down and think of all the possibilities. So they did the calculations for, uh, let's say, meteors dropping into the atmosphere, lightning, volcanoes on the surface, anything that could boost the amount of phosphine in that upper atmosphere. It's about 50 to 60 kilometers up, I believe. And they came up around 10,000 times short of the amount of phosphine they'd found. Basically, what that means is that for a likely amount of meteors, lightning, volcanoes, anything that could boost phosphine in that upper atmosphere, they took account for pretty much anything that they could have with what we know about atmospheric science. And their models came up around 10,000 times short. So that's interesting. So that brings up the question, Venus's atmosphere is thick, right? Like I said, it's filled with sulfur dioxide, which makes the atmosphere very inhospitable, very acidic. Brad, I want you to ask me something, okay? Ask me how on Earth, no, you know what? Ask me how on Venus any organic life is going to survive up there. Oh, I don't know. It sounds pretty impossible to me. I'm just going to say science. I'm going to say tardigrades. So tardigrades are present on Earth. You might have heard of them. They're, they're commonly called water bears. Long story short, these guys are about a millimeter long. That's uh, 0.03 inches, right? They can survive in temperatures as low as minus 200 Celsius. That's somewhere around uh, minus uh, 320 degrees Fahrenheit. And as high as 151 degrees Celsius. Um, they've survived in boiling alcohol, pure boiling alcohol. Um they can survive 1,000 times the radiation that a human, that the average human being can survive. So there are life forms that can handle things like this. And that's exciting because when you think about it, if that kind of life is capable of surviving in the most inhospitable environments on Earth, then there's no saying that life couldn't survive in equally which which it is about equally inhospitable environments on venus i i believe the upper atmosphere of venus or, or 
around where all this phosphine is being found isn't actually nearly as hot as the surface of Venus because of the way that the greenhouse effect that keeps Venus so hot works. So basically what you have is you have temperatures that are actually comparable to Earth. I think on the low end, they're around 40 degrees and on the high end, they're around 90 degrees. That's Celsius. So long story short, if you put tardigrades into Venus's atmosphere, on the basis of, of just temperature and the fact that tardigrades don't actually need very much oxygen, they could probably survive. Obviously, there are other factors that may not make that possible, but from what we know, it's very possible that life can survive in uh, environments that are that hostile, right? I'm super so we're excited sending about this. tardigrades in a spaceship. Well, um, that's I hope plan, so. That's plan B. No, that's plan A, buddy. Come on. <laughs> I thought plan A is we found Venus has phosphine. Well, like, no, that's that's the reason for plan A to exist. The fact that we <laughs> the fact that we found phosphine or we they found phosphine on Venus is a reason for plan A to exist. And you know what plan A actually is right now? There are proposals happening for a possible balloon mission to venus to end the debate because this is being debated quite widely in scientific circles and the biggest thing is i mean people can go back and forth all day but the best way to find out if it's true is to actually go out there and find it so the there are these low cost um essentially they're weather balloons although i'd assume they're they're pretty different from the regular weather balloons we'd see today but what they accomplish is they're launched on a rocket, obviously, to Venus, and then they are deployed in Venus's atmosphere around the height where we found all the phosphine, and they can do tests. So that's something that could happen by 2022. So we could actually know pretty soon. I mean, if we're talking on a, on a scientific scale, not only a scientific scale, but an astronomical scale, if we look at how quickly things tend to happen when space is involved, things take a long time, right? So 2022 is not that far off. And man, I am excited about this. Uh, uh, maybe a bit too excited. And it's important to stay skeptical. Like I said before, there are many skeptics in, in research circles. And there's so much about atmospheric science that we still don't understand. So one of the leading theories is that there's just something going on with the atmosphere that we don't understand. There's something happening with the planet's geology or the way the atmosphere is is made up that we just don't get. And and that's really what it is. Overall, there, there's not too much that we can say without actually going, right? So the biggest thing, I think, is that it's kind of reinvigorated the search for life to a degree. It's made us realize that we're not really looking at things that maybe we should be looking at nobody was looking at venus right uh there might have been a few groups but but by and large venus was was not on the top of of lists by any means right so so that's something that's really interesting and um we're, we're looking at something we never really thought to look at and usually as a rule of thumb that's good for science it also makes it a good time to talk about what scientists do and look for in general when they're looking for life outside of Earth.
So when we're looking for possible life on other planets, we actually don't know exactly what we should be looking for because there are so many possibilities. In your example, uh, phosphine is a possibility for us to be finding life. So we should be looking for that among our own planet's essentials like water, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and ozone. Um, but if we are only looking for those essential elements that we're used to seeing, we could be missing something pretty important. Uh, for example, billions of years ago, if somebody tried looking for life on our planet, then oxygen actually wouldn't have been the element to look for because there was just so little of it back then. Um, what they should have been looking for instead, billions of years ago, is methane, which microorganisms were producing a ton of very quietly in the ocean. So uh, that's why we can't just go off of the current elements that we're normally used to. Um, along with the essential elements, another important aspect of future habitable planets is the temperature and the starlight, or of course in our case the sunlight as we know it as. So there are high mass stars and there are low mass stars and obviously we're looking for uh, a star that's the most like our sun right now. But with high mass stars, they're burning tons and tons of energy so quickly that they actually die out within a few hundred million years, which actually, surprisingly enough, is not enough time to get life started yet. Um, Whoa, and then, what? Yep, that's a right. Few, a few hundred million years, not enough time to get life started? So life on Earth must have must have really... I mean, I think I heard the term, the, the it, it must be in the billions, right? That's right. Yeah. Billions for us in our case is obviously how long we took. I mean, like, as we know, the earth is, what is it? Somewhere 4.5 billion, somewhere in the 4 billion range years old. And I mean, we, I, I like humans or I guess organic life as we know it, um, only came around like within the past hundreds of millions of years. So as we're talking about this now, a few hundred million years isn't enough time to get our life started. I mean, we were just taking billions to get us started. So a high mass star is definitely not enough time for us to get started. And as you were talking about on an astronomical level, a few hundred million years, it sounds like a lot, but that is really small if you look on it on an astronomical level. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum from high-mass stars, there is the low-mass stars. And these live on for trillions of years, but uh, they don't give off as much energy, um, which requires our home planet that we'd want to be living on to be much, much closer to that low-mass star. So this actually becomes a problem when the star would begin a solar flare, and with our planet being close enough to receive enough energy from it would mean that we are in the flare zone, and it would slowly just degrade our planet's atmosphere, just eventually making it not livable anymore. So uh, we really are looking for a star that is quite similar to our sun that we're seeing now, but it's quite hard to come by because we are just you know, living in the right set of circumstances right now. Finally, there is the size or mass of a planet, which uh, some are obviously better suited for life than others, but uh, there is actually nothing to say that the current size of our planet right now is the best option to be living on. It's been good for our needs, but uh, what's to say that we don't go bigger? Some scientists suggest that a planet three times Earth's mass would come with a stronger surface gravity, a larger surface area, a thicker atmosphere, and even more. 
So as we've seen, there are quite a few aspects that come into play when we're trying to determine what kind of planet uh, could host life. Um, so one method of scientists being able to find what other types of uh, climates or elements that we could be living in is that uh, they're using climate models to determine what Earth could look like thousands of years down the road, uh, whether climate change as we know it now uh, continues to worsen or reverses or whatever other possibilities that they're looking up. Uh, they're looking it up, believe me. Um, but in the process of using the climate models on Earth, they also realized that this could determine whether or not any of the thousands of planets we found beyond our solar system could be habitable. So this is actually pretty interesting because the system that uses this climate model is actually one massive supercomputer, which consists of thousands of computers packed into racks about the size of any machines, and they're all spitting out seven quadrillion calculations per second. So to try to even think of that, it's more than billions, more than trillions. That's seven quadrillion calculations per second that that computer is spitting out. Another machine that is used to search for life far beyond our planet actually burrows from Isaac Newton's idea with white light. So we all know that shooting a white light through a prism exposes it as a band of colors ranging from violet to red, thinking of rainbows, for example. Um, so NASA takes from this idea and they shoot out a powerful beam of light towards whatever planet that it's targeted at and the light passes through that planet's atmosphere and during that process certain pieces of the light go missing and the beam sort of actually just looks like a barcode when you're looking at it in simple terms. So what happens with that beam of light is that the planet's atmosphere actually absorbs specific slices of the beam and it doesn't get sent through the atmosphere, it just gets sucked out actually. So scientists analyze the beam along with the missing pieces of it and those black gaps actually tell us a lot, such as what the gases are in the atmosphere of that planet. So that's quite a lot of information from just shining a light over at a planet. And actually this process has a name and it's called spectroscopy. This is pretty interesting information that I just got off of the NASA website, of course. Um, and I, to be quite honest, I haven't looked at the NASA website at all, ever. Um, and looking at it, I'm able to find a lot about uh, the missions that they've launched. Specifically, this mission that I looked into is called Mission Exoplanet. Um, and I urge you to go to NASA. If you have any questions, type it in. They have a lot of information as well as uh, 3D rendered resources, uh, pictures, videos. Uh, there's a whole lot further than uh, what, I've, what we're explaining right now. So I really urge you to check out the NASA website. But Alessio, just talking about the light beam, shooting it at planets and, you know, getting all that information back from it, as well as the climate models and the number of sheer, uh, I guess, answers that have been put out from the climate model. What do you gain from uh, what I've explained about, you know, searching for other life? Because, I mean, before this, I didn't know any of this. Uh, how much did you get from this? The coolest thing that really stands out to me right off the bat is how much we can understand just from light. You know, it, it and it transcends talking about planets and um, the possibility of life. It's just light is so important to astronomical observations of any kind. 
And I think what we should do is put some resources that kind of let let people play around a bit and check out all the different ways that light can be used for astronomical studies because I think it's really interesting. But on top of that, I think the possibility of us finding life on another planet, it, it's very likely. Whether or not it's soon or, you know, a couple centuries from now, I am of the belief that regardless of where it is, it's it's somewhere, right? It's somewhere and our methods of being able to find it and knowing what to look for are only going to get better because there are plenty of ways that we can mess up and get nowhere. But with each of those, what we really find is that they're part of a process, right? They're part of a process of trial and error, a process that can that can get us from point A to B. And yeah, it takes longer because we don't automatically know the right answers, but it gets us there and it's better than not looking, right? Because even if we're looking in the wrong places, um, even if we're looking at the wrong things, we're learning more every day, right? Like I said earlier, when I was talking about specifically what they found on Venus and the fact that phosphine um, only recently became something that we look for and we found it by accident on Venus, right? So that proves two points. That proves that if this is right, it'll prove that phosphine was the right thing to look for and that we've, we've accomplished what we set out to do as, as, a, as a race, really. But then the fact that it was an accident also, also proves the point that we should look at things that we don't necessarily expect um, to be fruitful, right? Venus wasn't really on anybody's radar, and now it is, and, and that's because of an accident. So we're human. Um, these researchers that are dedicating their lives to furthering the knowledge of the whole human race are, are, are themselves human. And a lot of people look at them and wonder why there hasn't been more progress or why we haven't found it yet. If it exists, we have to have found it by now, but it's not that simple. And, and we're learning. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, I think if there's anything that we can... 100% say from this episode is that there really is no definitive answer as to what we are looking for. Um, we just have the tools and we continue to look, but uh, one day we'll find something that uh, just goes out of the norm, such as phosphine and Venus, and uh, as long as we just know that we need to continue further, go down that path of Occam's razor, um, then we'll definitely get some answers Humans have been wondering for a long time if we're alone in the universe. And while it's likely that there are other forms of life in the universe, there are a few questions to be answered as to whether or not intelligent life exists. So week after next, we're going to be taking the discussion up a notch when it comes to the search for extraterrestrial life. And we'll be talking about specifically intelligent life and some explanations as to why we haven't seen something that's at least mentally similar to us yet. Well, that's all we've got for today. Thanks for listening. 
You can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Uh, but be sure to check out our website at didn'tknowpodcast.com. I'm Brad Ball. I'm Alessio Danini. We hope you learned something.